together and let's welcome Pastor Matt Richardson. My wife is with my mother-in-law, so she's in great hands. She's not even going to miss me over the next couple hours. I'm so grateful for Pastor Jason and for the Waterview family. Uh, we are rooting you guys on. Uh, it's, it's amazing to know that the kingdom of believers is so much bigger than what's just gathered here today. And so uh, every fourth Sunday, we pray over you guys. Uh, whether you know it or not, you are loved, you are valued, you are known. And we are praying so hard for your church. We're believing for great things for your church our church started in a very similar setting to this. We met in a uh, YMCA hot yoga room. It smelled way worse than this. So y'all are in great starting uh, place for uh, the future. And now we purchased an old uh, AMC movie theater during COVID and renovated it. And now it's our church home. So I'm grateful to be here with you guys today. I want to share with you uh, a picture of my family. I got to brag on them for just a moment. Here you'll see, uh, I think maybe my family, a picture of my wife and our three babies. This was taken just the other day. Judah is actually here today. He's hanging out with the kiddos. And then my daughter, Savannah, there. Uh, she's five years old and the light of my life. And then baby Nora was born just a couple days ago. This is my family. And the reason why, yeah, thank you. So today I want to tell, tell you about something and talk with you about something that I'm really passionate about. I'll start by telling you a story. My wife and I got married 10 years ago, and uh, we quickly bought our first home on the same street as our best friends. Like, dream scenario. Just got married. Our best friends lived diagonal to us. We loved it. We would do Saturday morning breakfast together. Uh, we would watch movies together. When one of us was going through a crisis, we were right there. When they had their first child, we rushed over and took care of them and their family and made them meals. We would worship together on their back porch. It was really the most beautiful opportunity for us to begin our marriage in close proximity to people that we loved so much. Yet, right across the street was a man named Mark, so directly across from me and right next door to my best friend Adam. And Mark was a quiet man. He kept to himself a lot. He was nice, but he had some serious demons. We would, I remember my wife and I would wake up in the middle of the night and we would see blue and red lights shining in our bedroom, wondering if something had happened once again at their home. And it was once again because of a fight that took place. I remember nights where the girlfriend would just storm out of the house and leave Mark there for days on end. They had children after a couple years because naturally children solve all of your problems. Uh, we all know that. Uh, so they had kids and the, the matters just continued to get worse until eventually they got divorced and their life just continued to spiral downward on this trajectory towards brokenness. And I remember as a newlywed thinking, I want my life to look nothing like that guy's life. But for whatever reason, Mark always seemed to be outside when I was outside. Uh, this was in Indiana, mind you. We had this stuff called snow on the ground, and uh, every winter it snows. It gets really cold out, uh, and it would snow. And Mark would always come over and help me shovel my driveway. It was almost as if the Lord had put Mark literally right in front of me. But, but I want to confess to you, I was a young preacher, 
at a growing church and I was so focused on building this empire called church and this production of things that we would do on Sunday mornings and doing life with my best friend right across the street that I completely missed the opportunities that were literally right in front of me to reach my neighbor, the one right in front of me. Eventually my wife and I moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana. That means nothing to you guys, but about two hours away. And I remember I was preaching in the pulpit one Sunday on Matthew 28. And y'all know this passage. We'll see it on the screen as well. Jesus gives these marching orders to his disciples right before he departs. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always. Jesus spends three years with his disciples. He shows them how to lead, he shows them how to live and how to love, and then right before he departs, he gives them this one instruction to go, and the word go literally means as you go, so as you go about your day, as you go about your time in whatever city that you're in, as you go about parenting, as you go about neighboring even, make disciples. And from the pulpit, did you know that God can actually speak to the guy with the microphone as much as he can speak to the guy in the seats? I'm literally preaching about this. And the Holy Spirit of God whispered to me and said, how are you calling your church to go to the nations when you aren't even willing to go across the street? And I remember fumbling my way through the rest of that sermon because I knew that I wasn't willing to live what I was trying to call our church to do and to be. And in this moment, I was probably 25 years old, this young preacher with my whole ministry life ahead of me. I saw my future in the church flash before my eyes and everything changed for me in that moment. Everything about my calling, everything about my purpose as a pastor changed. You see, because God calls all of us to be fishers of men not keepers of the aquarium. We've gotten really good at keeping the aquarium real clean. The church, we like to clean the walls and polish it and make sure everybody inside is real nice and fed. When Jesus didn't call us to keep the aquarium nice and clean, he called us to fish for more people. So I believe, and what I want to set the table for literally today is that I believe it's time to put mission back into the hands of everyday people. Jesus made it very clear we are to go and make disciples. The word disciple, if you're unfamiliar with it, simply means student or learner of Jesus. A disciple is someone who makes other disciples. It sounds really good in theory, but let's have a really honest moment. If you know me or if you ever come to our church, I don't like to just say things for the sake of saying it. Let's just be real honest. Let's talk real transparently this morning. How many of us can actually say that we've taken literally and seriously Jesus's command to make disciples. In, in full transparency, seven years ago, as a teaching pastor in a church, I could count on one hand the name of people that I had discipled. And I didn't even need all five fingers. In my entire life, even up just to the age of 25, I could only think of two people that I had even somewhat discipled in my life. And I was a pastor. You see, I think the church has done a serious disservice to the body of Christ 
You see, rather than equipping and empowering Christians to actually live like Jesus, what have we done? We've simply said, don't, don't worry about that. Let the paid professionals handle that aspect. If you don't want to talk to your friends about Jesus, that's totally fine. Just bring them to our church service and we'll take care of all that for you. And right, that's totally counterintuitive to what Jesus says, but it fits perfectly with the convenience culture we live in. If you want a burger, all you have to do is pick up your phone. You don't have to get off your couch and somebody will deliver it to you. The world in which we live says you can watch any movie. It's at the, you know, right at your fingertips at any time in any part of the day. In the convenience culture in which we live, the model of church has fit beautifully. No, 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 no. No personal responsibility on you. Just, just come to church. Bring your kids to VBS, laugh at my jokes, give a little bit of money, and go home. And for the last six years of ministry, seven years of ministry, and now three years here in North Carolina, I've kind of gone all in on this what some people call radical, I just call it biblical, shift in what the church is supposed to be. You see, for years we have relied upon one hour on a Sunday morning and a sermon from a professional Christian to be the sole way that the lost hear the gospel. Have a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? Great, our children's ministry is awesome. Just bring them to church. Just get them to church, we'll take care of the rest. Well, we hope that happens, right? The goal is not to get people to church, it's to get people to Jesus, okay? You tracking with me? Just um, a, a couple weeks ago, my buddy called me, one of my best friends called me and said, hey, are you busy right now? I said, well, I'm working, what's up? He goes, uh, I'm coming by, I'm gonna pick you up. Um, I'm like, I don't, I'm not just gonna get in the car with you until I know where we're going, right? Let alone my best friend is straight, like, hey, get in the car. That's what creepers do. You don't just get into a car with anybody, right? And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I've got tickets to see Matchbox 20. And I said, I'm in. I will drop everything. Called my wife, who was 38 weeks pregnant, and said, honey, hold the baby. Uh, I'm going to see Matchbox 20. A terrible mistake, right? But what, but, but what am I saying here? You see, in this moment, my best friend called me and offered me the vehicle to get to the destination. And it was the destination that enticed me to get into the vehicle. And so in that moment, I'll just get in the car with my best friend for any reason, right? We're not just going to go drive around the block. But because of the destination, I'm in. And so you see, the church is not the destination. It's simply the vehicle to get people from here to Jesus. But all we've told people is just get in the car. Get in the car, dude. And he's like, why would I get in the car with you? Where are we going? And the church has not been equipped and empowered to tell people where it is that they're headed. Maybe because you don't even know where you're headed. And until we know the destination, friends, how are we ever going to get people in the car called the church to get them to the destination called Jesus? You see, we're living in urgent days where we need the bride of Christ to not just put on really polished services, but we need an army of equipped and empowered believers to take the gospel into every corner of this city, in Mooresville, in Statesville, in Winston-Salem, and beyond. And how do we do that? We do that in our neighborhoods. You do that in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your kids' little league teams, maybe even around your own family room table. Because I don't want you, all this stock we've put in the church on Sunday mornings reaching the lost, I don't know what your lost friends are doing this morning. Mine are hungover, right? They're not in church. I can't get them to get out of bed at 9 a.m. to go play golf, let alone come to church. 
But these are the people that I'm playing golf with on Saturday mornings. These are the people that my wife and I are having dinner with. These are the people that we're vacationing with. And we've not equipped and empowered the church to actually take them to Jesus. Hold that thought for a moment. One of the things that I love most about the Bible is how often it references food. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, my wife has been pregnant uh, for nine months, just had the baby. So I've gained 12 pounds in nine months. I am proud of that achievement. We have meal trains till September. I'm expecting that gain to continue for quite some time. Uh, and I have no apologies about it, right? Why does the Bible reference food so much? It's not just about food. It's about Jesus knew that something sacred takes place around the table. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God dwelled with man, and what did they do? Adam and Eve, they would eat. In the Passover, the people of God share a meal to remember the faithfulness of their God. In the Last Supper, we just shared a moment with the elements together. Jesus shares a meal with his disciples around a table just before he's betrayed. In the return of Christ in Revelation, this beautiful day that we urgently wait for is depicted as the wedding feast of the Lamb. This moment where Jesus is going to return, the skies are going to open, and Jesus returns with his faithful, and we're going to set up an eternal kingdom here on earth. And what is the first thing to say that we're going to do? We're going to eat. Praise God. We're going to eat. So many people are terrified of heaven because of the clouds and the harps. But listen, y'all, heaven is not so much clouds and harps as it is golden corral without the salmonella. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Buffet of food all the time together. And as Jesus reaches this lost and broken world, throughout his entire ministry, it's done over a table. Just in the Gospels alone, 23 encounters with a lost person around a table. 23. See, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, did you know that you've been invited to a table just like this one. You've been invited to a feast. Jesus puts your name on a place setting that looks something just like this. And he said the day that he saved you, I've reserved a place for you at the table, a spot just for you to dine at my table with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What an amazing moment to notice and acknowledge that your name is sealed. It is saved. There is a table setting just for you at the banquet of the table of the king of the universe. And as you enjoy this moment here at the table, have you ever looked around to see who's not at the table? Who's not sitting across the table from you? You see, in Matthew 22, Jesus tells this story this parable about the kingdom. This is what it says in chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. When my wife and I got married, we sent out invitations inviting everyone to come to our wedding celebration. But look at what happens in this shocking turn of events in verse 5 through 7. But they, the people who were given the invitation, paid no attention and went away. One to his farm, another to his business. Well, look at this. The rest 
seized his servants and mistreated them and even killed them. I mean, imagine this. You're just simply sent out to invite people to a wedding feast, and you end up dying in the process. We just hosted a wedding uh, at our church last week for a bride who sent out 150 invitations, and 36 people showed up. It was so awkward for the bride. She was enraged. She was upset that so many people had said they were coming, but then did not show up. Look at what happens. The king was enraged. And what did he do? He sent out troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. I'll let your pastor Jason handle that one some other time as to why that happens. But listen, in this shocking turn of events, nobody wants to come to this wedding feast. The people that were invited were not worthy. Look at what Jesus then says. He tells to his servants, he says, the banquet is ready, the table is set, but those who were invited were not worthy. Instead of saying, party's off, everybody go home, what does Jesus say? He says to them, go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they could find, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. The king didn't say the party was off. He said, this is a great party, and this meal is worth enjoying in the company of other people. And if the people that were invited don't want to come, let's go find people who are willing to come and enjoy this amazing celebration together. Now, so much of this parable focuses on the king or on the groom or the people that don't want to come, but I want us to notice a more subtle point that Jesus is making here in verse 10. Look at what happens here in verse 10. I believe we have it on the screens here. So those servants went out to the roads and gathered. Who is it that went out to find people and called people to the wedding feast? The servants. The king said, I don't even care who you go get. Just go get as many people as possible. Go to the outskirts of the town. Go to the rejects. Go to the ones who were not invited first and bring them in. And church, you have been called by the king to get as many people as possible to his table. And this is where this idea of the one in front of you began. A couple of years ago, we began this initiative at New Church. And we called it the one in front of you. Now, whether you guys use the same language or not, I'm just sharing with you our experience. And this name didn't come from a book or a study or some sort of leadership guru. It came from the fact that Mark was literally right in front of me. And I missed it. Because I was so focused on building my holy empire that I missed that Jesus had put literally in front of me a man who was desperate to know me. And I didn't give him the time of day. And I believe that I'm not some sort of anomaly in this. Right. I believe every single one of us have people in our lives, maybe right in front of you. Jesus has placed people right in front of you who do not know him. And he has placed you in their life for the specific purpose of inviting them to the table. Now, here's the thing about living on mission. If I asked you, 
This question again, as you are seated at the table, I'm believing that most of us are saved believers, people that have been given and have received the invitation to the wedding, and we are now here. And I asked you, who's not sitting at the table? My guess is you're not talking about the lady who's working at Publix down the street right now. You're not talking about the 500 employees in your corporate office. You're thinking of your brother your best friend, your husband, your child, your neighbor, your son's little league coach. You see, because whenever we think about this table and we think about mission, naturally our minds go to the people that we love the most. And we've talked so much about this idea of going out and living on mission. We say, we're going to take this city back for Jesus, or we're going to change this workplace for Jesus. And we go in with our holy, you know, posture, and we're going to go in and we're going to start Bible studies in our, in our break rooms, and we're going to do all these amazing things. And what ends up happening when we're thinking on a macro level? Nothing really changes. But what if one person came to know Jesus? What if you didn't think so much about the entire office and just the guy who has the cubicle next to you who's been talking to you for the last six months about his divorce? What if instead of thinking about the entire neighborhood, you just think about the one guy that lives right across the street? Did you know that if I were to preach every day for the rest of my life, and we rented out the stadium, the Bank of America Stadium where the Panthers play, um, and, and we, we preach the gospel... And a thousand people every day get saved. We would call that revival in America, but it would take 5,000 years for the whole world to hear about Jesus. But did you know if I make a one-year investment into Pastor Jason, and he comes to know the Lord after one year, and in year number two, he says, well, I got a buddy that doesn't know Jesus. I'm going to invest in him. And I'm going to say, good, because I got another buddy over here, and I'm going to go invest in him. And then in year three, that guy and that guy plus Jason and I now say, well, we have other people in our lives. Did you know the whole world would know Jesus in 52 years? I'm 34. Mathematically speaking, it is still possible for the whole world to know Jesus in my lifetime. If you are under the age of 48, it's possible that Jesus may be made known to every single person that is walking the face of this earth in our lifetime. If every single one of us would accept the personal responsibility, not to change the whole world, but to change your neighbor your best friend, your co-worker. And I love that there's a story I want to share in John 1. Jesus comes and he meets some of the sons of John's apostles. Two, one of them, his name is Andrew. And we're going to cut through some of this. I would encourage you to go to John 1 later today and to read more about it. It says this, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, so John the Baptist went before Jesus. He had his own following of men, and he was teaching. Jesus is fresh on the scene here. Jesus comes by. It says this in verse 36. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples that were with John heard him say this and followed Jesus. They leave John, and they start following Jesus. When Jesus turned around and noticed them following, he asked them, who are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, 
which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see. Jesus invites them to come with them. It says, so they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Look at this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. Look at this. Andrew is one of the two disciples of John who meet Jesus. Their eyes are open to the fact that, oh my gosh, the Messiah is standing right in front of us. He's here. My eyes have seen the glory of the king. My eyes have seen the one who was and is and is to come. And look at verse 41. He first found his own brother. Andrew just met Jesus for the first time. And who's the first person he wants to know about it? His brother. And look at who his brother is. Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. And he brings his brother Simon to Jesus. Notice that. Didn't bring him to church, brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So you got to know your Bible here to know this. Who is Peter? He is the one on which Jesus says, I will build my church upon you. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, this man preaches and 3,000 people are saved. Did you know that man came to Christ because his brother brought him to Jesus? You can make an argument that the day of Pentecost happened because one brother fell in love with Jesus and shared it with his other brother. You see, then in the next few verses, a man named Philip meets Jesus. We're not going to go there in the text, but what does he do? He goes and tells his best friend, Nathaniel, and Nathaniel questions. says, there's no way that this Jesus actually is who you say it is, and, and Philip says, just come and see, and Jesus takes care of the rest. Go read that later today. You see, when you came in today, you were handed a place card. These place cards are spot markers at a wedding or a feast or some sort of gathering to show you where it is that you're seated. And if there's a thousand people in the room and there's a thousand place settings and you come in, you don't have to worry about whether or not there's a seat saved for you. Why? There's place cards. I have a table setting somewhere around here. I just got to find it. And you find your seat and you sit and you enjoy the feast. But you see, I want you to also think about now the people in your life that are not at this gathering, are not at this table. And I'd like for you in this moment of kind of doing this together, you should have gotten a pen and a card. If we're being honest, who in your life doesn't know Jesus that might be literally right in front of you? I'd like to give you a moment just to think about that, and then I'd like for you to write their name on that card. The name that I wrote on my card is Chad. 
Chad is the coach of my son's Little League team. You see, as I started to think differently about mission, you start looking at every aspect of your life a little bit differently. Instead of thinking, why did my son get put on the Yankees? That's the last team I want my son to be on. We're Cardinals fans. It's like, you know, I don't want him wearing a Yankees hat around our house. Instead of just being upset about that, I start to ask questions. My wife and I start asking questions like, Jesus, why did you want us on the Yankees? Who is it on this team that needs to see the love of Jesus on this team? And for us, it's Coach Chad. And he's not here today. He lives in Winston, so I can talk about this like I don't get to talk about it from the pulpit in my church, and I kind of love that. Guess, who's, guess who comes to church now? His wife, Katie. Because on my wife's card was the name Katie. And so as a family, we said, what if we started to invest in this family that's literally right in front of us? He's the coach of our team. Katie now comes to our church. She served at VBS for the first time this past week. Her son, Hayes, just got baptized. Chad's not there yet. But guess what? Jesus has put somebody in his life that is actively pursuing him. Why? Because Jesus is pursuing him. Now, you may look at the name of that person on that card and think that there ain't no way that person's going to come to church with me. Good news. I didn't tell you to invite them to church. They are the least religious people ever. Good news. They don't need to be religious. They, they have so many issues in their life. Good news. What did it say in the story of the king and the banquet? They invited both the good and the evil. Nobody is too far gone for this dinner table. And if you're feeling that moment of like, I don't, I don't know if this person would ever come around. Let me tell you the story about a man named Bill. I told you my family and I, I'm going to go a little bit long. I apologize. My wife and I moved, I told you, to Fort Wayne. After leaving that moment with Mark, we moved a couple hours north and, and I preached that sermon. And then my wife and I moved into a new home and we we knew that God called us to that neighborhood for a specific reason. We didn't know what it was, but I remember the day that we were unloading the U-Haul truck and an older gentleman right next door to us approached the fence and said, Howdy, neighbor. And I said, Hey. He said, Welcome to the neighborhood. My name's Bill. I said, Well, my name's Matt. Nice to meet you. He goes, What brings you to the neighborhood? And I said, Well, we just moved here from Indianapolis. I just took a job here. He's like, What do you do? And I said, Well, I'm actually a pastor. And he goes, Oh, and then he said an expletive that I'm not going to say in this church, in this pulpit, or I'll never be invited back. And he turned around and walked into his house. And I'm thinking, uh, what did I say? What did I do? You know that a pastor's worst fear is to sit next to somebody on an airplane uh, that finds out you're a pastor because it's the most awkward plane ride ever. And that was the moment I just had with Bill. But I knew in that moment, God, this is why you gave us this house. Because there's something about this man that is so turned off to you and your gospel and even your church. Jesus, I'm accepting the fact that that does not offend me. It means there's a brokenness in that man's life, and you've placed me here to reach him. Bill was 74 years old the day I met him. And as I got to know him, Bill was the nicest guy. 
but he refused to open up about God. I knew that there was something in him. And rather than just asking him to go to church once, and when he said no, saying, well, I'll move on to somebody else, I started to take an interest in his interests. Bill enjoyed working with wood. He had a whole wood shop in his backyard. So I would see him go out there at night, and I would say, hey, Em, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go hang out with Bill. And I would just invite myself into his garage. Hey, Bill, what's going on? He's like, oh, oh, hey, man. Tell me about what you have here. Oh, this is a bandsaw, and this is a circular saw. And I started learning how to build from Bill. And now, instead of me just interrupting him, he comes to my front door, and he says, hey, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be working in the shed if you want to come out there with me. Like, yeah, absolutely, I'll be right out there. We started to build this bond. Bill would build these uh, wooden sailboats. They were just amazing. And as we shared those moments around his wood shop, I started to learn about his life, that he was in theater, that he was a photographer. I learned that he was a Bears fan and that he loved red wine. And then one day I needed something moved in my garage and I could have moved it myself, but I wanted to see if Bill was willing to come across the fence to my territory. So I walked over next door and I said, hey Bill, could you help me in my garage for just a minute? Yeah, sure, of course. Now I know Bill is willing to come on my territory. And I helped, he helped me move it for five minutes, and then he went back his way. But I knew that that was an open invitation, that he was comfortable to come onto our property. So next time I saw him, hey, Bill, you know, we've been neighbors for like six months now. You and Marty want to come over for dinner? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. That'd be great. And we shared a meal together around our table. And it was an amazing moment that set the table for what was to come. You see, a few months later, it started snowing. It was February, remember, white stuff, cold from the ground in Indiana. <laughs> and I had this amazing snowblower. And I started to snowblow my driveway first. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to go do Bill's driveway first. So I went to Bill's house, and I started snowblowing his driveway. And I see him come to the front door, tears in his eyes, rushing down his face, and I hear him yell from the front door, you have no idea how much this means. I'm like, dude, I'm just snowballing your driveway. But something I did in that moment struck a chord with him. And I knew that Bill was growing softer and softer to me. A few months later, Bill said, hey, remember that day you moved in and you, uh, you know, I, I walked away from you and I'm sure that was a super awkward moment for you. Let me tell you why I did that. I was like, finally. We're, we're a year and a half in now. So um, I, I did that because I was actually a pastor when I was in my 20s. I said, really? Tell me about what happened. He goes, yeah, I was a pastor. I was a youth pastor and walked into my office one day and saw our lead pastor having an affair with the secretary. And I said, in that moment, I want nothing more to do with organized religion. I want nothing to do with the church. And that was it. So then I began to see, again, there was a deeper story to this man's life. A few months later, Bill said, you know what? You remind me so much of your son, of my son. I said, Bill, we've been friends for a year and a half. You never told me you had a son. He's probably my age. I'd love to meet him. And he goes, you can't. I said, why? He said, because my son died three years ago from a brain tumor. He said, you remind me so much of him. You remember that day that I was crying when you snow blew my driveway? 
I said, yeah, that was weird. Why were you crying? He goes, because my son did it. And every time I go out there, all I think about is how much I miss my son. So now I know that he hates the church because of what happened. And now I know that he doesn't like God because of what happened. And then in 2018, Bill collapsed inside of his house. His wife didn't know who else to call, so she ran next door and grabbed me, and I helped the EMS load him in an ambulance, and that was the last time Bill ever came to his house. He was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, and he was told that he would die within six months, but Bill was still not there with the Lord, so I visited him in hospice every single day for six months. I shared the gospel with him every single day. We started having talks about eternity and life after death and that he didn't need to be afraid. We started to really open up the scriptures and consider who this God is and what he had seen in the church was mere mortal man and their flawed humanity and the sin and brokenness of their life, but that doesn't have to represent the God of heaven. And so we started to talk about that. He started to break down his walls, and he was right there. He was so close to accepting Jesus. In fact, the last time that I ever talked to Bill, he said, Matt, I want to believe, but I'm just so scared. I have intentionally turned my back on all of that for my entire life. And here I am getting ready to die. And I don't know what to do. I got a phone call in the middle of the night that next day that Bill had died. The next morning, I went next door to check on his wife, and she said, I can't believe this. When we went to go see Bill after he passed, there was a note sitting on his table. And it had some final farewells for his wife and their family. But Marty said, Matt, you're included in it. I was like, who am I? I'm just the neighbor. What Bill wrote in that letter to me was a simple ask, asking if I would speak at his funeral to share about all of the times that we had together and about the hope of Jesus. And on the day of his funeral, the entire family of atheists came up to me and said, we cannot believe that you are sharing here. Bill would never have a pastor share at his funeral. What did you do in this man's life? And I said, it wasn't me, but let me tell you about Jesus. We shared the gospel at his funeral. They invited us to lunch afterwards. And you know what? I'm ultimately not sure where Bill, sure where he landed with the Lord. The Lord is in charge of all of that. But I go to bed at night knowing that I did absolutely everything I can. You may be thinking, what difference can I make when there's millions of people that don't know Jesus? While I may not be able to share Jesus with everyone, I can surely share him with one. Band, you guys can go ahead and come on back up. I want to finish by telling you this. There was a study done in the late 2000s of phrases that elicit the most emotion. There are things, there are words that naturally, just when they're spoken, will just elicit some sort of emotion in your brain. Let's do a little participation here. Phrases. What do you think the number one phrase that elicits emotion is? I love you, number one. I love you, number one. We all feel that, right? When your spouse says, I love you, or your child says, Daddy, I love you. It does something chemically in your brain. What do you think number two was? I forgive you. I forgive you. 
you've experienced that, the moment that you've been waiting for somebody to forgive you of all the wrongdoing that you had done to them, and you've been waiting for them to just relinquish all of that pain that you've been feeling, and they finally say, I forgive you, and you go, you do? And you feel the weight immediately lifted off your shoulders. What do you think the number three most emotionally elicited response phrase is? Dinner is ready. (laughs) Dinner is ready. I love you. I forgive you. Dinner is ready. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus said to me the day I got saved. Matt, I love you. Matt, I forgive you. And Matt, I actually have a dinner for you. I have a place for you. I have a table setting for you. That's exactly what Jesus said to you the day that he rushed into your heart and saved your very life. And if friends, if that's the words that Jesus has said to us, surely those are the words that we can go and tell the world that they need to hear of the love of King Jesus. And what does Jesus want to say to your neighbor or your brother or your coworker or your friend? Not how wretched they are, not how broken they are, not how foolish they are for being hung over this morning, not because of the mistakes that they've made with their wife or because once again the police were at their house. It's simply, I love you, I forgive you, and dinner is ready. So as we worship, I would love for you, if you're committed to this, calling the one in front of you, To hear from the King of kings and Lord of lords, I love you, I forgive you, and dinner is ready. We're going to sing a song called Available. And it says in it, I'm available. I hear you call, Lord. I'm available. Here I am, Lord. You can have it all. You may not know the mechanics of how to talk to your neighbor about Jesus yet. You may not even be sure what to say. But if you're just willing to say yes to the call of Christ to go and make disciples in your neighborhoods, your workplaces, and your homes, I'd love for you to take that name and bring it to the table as we sing. Let me pray for you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this time together. I thank you for the work that you've done in my heart. Jesus, I thank you that you would choose to use a group of broken people like me and my friends today to share your gospel, to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus, I am praying for revival to break loose at Waterview Church in Mooresville, North Carolina. But God, we don't pray that it happens in a service on Sunday morning. We pray that it happens around dining room tables all across the city. We pray that it happens on Little League fields, that it would happen at soccer games, that it would happen in break rooms, that it would happen through meetings at Starbucks, God. Why? Because people don't need to come to a paid professional. They need to come to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God, forgive us for what we've made the church to be, what it's intended to be, the vehicle to get people to you, Jesus. God, this may be a small table in front of me, but make no mistake about it, Jesus, you have plenty of room for one more. And so, God, I'm praying as we worship that it wouldn't just be singing words on a screen. This would be the desperate cry of our heart. Here I am, Lord. 
I will go across the street. I will go across the fence. I will go to the cubicle next to me. I will go to the family member that doesn't know you. I will go into the bedroom of my home to my spouse that doesn't know you. I will pick up the phone and call my child who wants nothing to do with me. I will go wherever it is that you want me to go. King Jesus, I am available. And God, may you bless this table. Not because there's anything special about it, but because the names that are going to be piled up here are your children. And you love them. And you want to forgive them. And you want to share a meal with them, God. Thank you for using us to be the ones to bring them to the table.